The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, good evening. And um, how's the volume here? Good. Maybe it could be a little bit slighter, softer, because um, how's this now? Is this a little bit loud for me? Teeny bit down lower. How's it? Does this still work in this way? Okay. This evening I'd like to finish the series of talks I've been doing this winter. <clears throat> I don't know if you've been coming to it. I've uh, been interrupted for two weeks. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, a series of uh, talks on the f- most basic teaching the Buddha gave on mindfulness practice. And um, he gave a particular discourse that's usually uh, called in English the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Uh, I prefer to translate it as the Four Foundations for Awareness. Uh, There are four areas of our life that if we bring careful attention to these areas of our life, they have the consequence, the result, of of developing uh, uh, a very clear sense of awareness. One uh, scholar monk calls it lucid awareness, and um, and this lucid awareness is <clears throat> uh, the condition. One of the conditions for what in Buddhism is called liberation, or the experience of nibbana or nirvana, and um, it's a experience, a, a, pro- a profound letting go or uh, some people prefer the word release, a profound release of um, any holding or clinging or gripping that we have in the mind or in the heart. Um, Someone pointed out to me recently that the word uh, letting go um, uh, literally means to let it move as opposed to drop it. And uh, I usually associate letting go with dropping something, you know, no longer holding it. But uh, letting it move is kind of a nice idea. Uh, it wants to move, except that we resist it or we stop it, we grip onto it. And so to let it flow, let it go. And so to let our life flow or to let our life move through us rather than somehow blocking it or stopping it or resisting it or, or uh, pulling away from it, all the kind of different, different things we do. And so um, the experience of Nibbana, the Pali word for nirvana, is a radical uh, letting things move again, letting things go. Um, And one of the things that uh, is a holding on, is a stopping of the flow, is uh, what's uh, uh, identification, is when we get self-consciously involved with our experience, in the ordinary kind of problematic way of becoming self-conscious. Um, you know, it's me, myself, and mine, and we start tripping over ourselves because of it. And, uh, of course, you're the, you know, generally one of the main characters of, in your story, of your life. And so it's reasonable that uh, you should be one of the subjects of the story and something you're concerned about. But we can get overly self-conscious about it. And... Uh, 
to really let ourselves, our life, move uh, freely, it's best not to be too self-conscious. Um, <clears throat> and so this part of this Nibbana is to let go of this kind of excessive self-concern that many people have. The experience of Nibbana is also a, a letting go, or actually here the, the language is actually quite dramatic in the early literature of Buddhism. And that is uh, to destroy, so that's a strong word, to destroy. There's a, some of you know about the Dharma punk scene. Uh, Noah Levine, and he has a whole kind of following of people that call them Dharma punks. And they, sometimes you see them around, they have black sweatshirts that say Dharma punks on them. And on the back of their, of their shirts sometimes, it says, meditate and destroy. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> the previous generation of Buddhists in America, convert Buddhists, uh, they would avoid languages like destroy, and which uh, irritates the Dharma punks, you know, because they were too, you know, still you know, coming out of the hippiedom. And uh, so that wasn't a different approach to things. So the idea of destroying is kind of, it can seem really quite, you know, negative and destructive and <clears throat> somehow, you know, it's like, you know, coming from the wrong place inside of us to destroy. But in fact, the Buddha talked about destroying greed, hate, and delusion. And the idea of destroying, uh, it's destroying the forces that interrupt the free flow of our life, the free kind of movement so we can let go, let things go that should be going, should be moving, but we want to remove the things that stop the flowing, stop the moving. And greed, hate, and delusion is one of those things that are considered the stoppers. They interrupt the whole process of our life. And so Nibbana, this experience of liberation, uh, when it's a uh, significant experience of realization or awakening, comes with... Um, uh, a radical shift in our relationship to greed, hate, and delusion. A radical disinterest in being involved in these fundamental forces of human life, greed, hate, and delusion. And it's hard to imagine, how could this happen? How could I, you know, it seems like it's built into our system that there's very strong desire, compulsive desire, or very strong aversion or ill will, and sometimes very strong delusion. And if these are fundamental to who we are, uh, how, how could you possibly destroy them or what does it take? Well, the practice of mindfulness, when it's developed to the point of developing lucid awareness, brings the mind to a certain kind of <clears throat> condition where it's very still, very soft, very flexible, very fluid, where there's very little holding. There's still a little bit of holding, very little holding. So it can seem very natural for the mind to let go fully. And in a busy, active life, self-conscious life, um, where we have all kinds of things that seem very important to us, and uh, it can seem uninteresting to let go deeply. It can seem like why, you know, never occur to someone that they could let go of some of the fundamental drives that run civilizations sometimes. The, 
the drives of greed, hate, and delusion. So it's a remarkable uh, goal that uh, the Buddha championed. And, um, and he said that if it was not possible to do this, he would not have taught it. <clears throat> kind of a strong statement of confidence that it's possible for people to become awakened, become free. So in this uh, famous discourse called the Discourse in the Four Foundations for Awareness, um, <clears throat> it goes through uh, 13 exercises that you can do that cultivates the strong awareness. And remember, so strong awareness is an awareness where the mind becomes poised or, or equanimous or at ease in such a way that letting go becomes uh, easier and easier. So you go through it and you develop this lucid awareness <clears throat> through these four foundations of mindfulness. And then there's a conclusion to the whole thing. And the Buddha said, if anyone <clears throat> should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for that person. Either final knowledge here and now or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. So here the, <clears throat> the final goal is not called Nibbana, but, f- but final knowledge. <clears throat> because uh, uh, understanding is a very important part <clears throat> of this whole process of freedom in Buddhism. That um, it's not supposed to be magic, it's not supposed to be wishful thinking that we become awakened, but it comes from a profound, something really profound understanding of what's going on <clears throat> in this life or in ourselves, in our mind. Um, <clears throat> so it's called final knowledge. Or if there's a little bit of clinging left, <clears throat> then you don't get fully liberated. Excuse me. <clears throat> you don't get fully liberated, <clears throat> but you get uh, what's called um, um, uh, non-return. And non-return means that <clears throat> in the ancient kind of understanding, you'll, uh, you'll die when time to die, and <clears throat> you'll, only, uh, you'll never get reborn again as a human being. You'll, you'll get reborn in some kind of very special higher realm of heavenly realm, and from there you'll never return to a human realm. But from there you'll attain your final liberation. <clears throat> so that's nice, in a comfortable place up there. <laughs> <clears throat> so one of two results. And if you atta- attain final knowledge here and now, then in this ancient lang- uh, understanding, you would not get reborn. But, so it's seven years. It's kind of like a guarantee. <laughs> Do this for seven years. <clears throat> but then he goes on to say, let alone seven years. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, one of two fruits could be expected for that person. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. That's nice. It's getting easier. Let alone one year. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, 
for six months, <laughs> for five months, for four months, for three months, for two months, for one month, for half a month, one of two fruits could be expected for that person. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, non-return. Let alone <clears throat> half a month. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way, for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for that person. Either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it was with reference to this that it was said, this is the direct path for purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So, it's, so here it says, <clears throat> if you cultivate this, this practice of mindfulness as taught in this discourse, it's possible to become fully awakened in seven days. Isn't that nice? Um, the question is, how do you have to practice it during those seven days? And the usual answer, you have to, you have to practice it thoroughly. You have to be on top of it all your waking hours. Not letting a single moment slip into mindlessness. Just really present, really present. If you do it, um, but it also says you can do it in half a month, so two weeks about. <clears throat> and um, so there also you have to, you know, really be, have strong mindfulness. But maybe it doesn't quite have to be as continuous initially. But you have more time to build up. And then you can do it in a month. You have more time to build up the momentum so that it becomes continuous. And if you have seven years, you have much more time to slowly build it up. And so at some point you get to the point where the mindfulness is pretty continuous. And what that means, a relaxed mind that's ardent and energized to stay aware, lucidly aware of every waking moment, of everything that comes and everything goes, everything that's going on, is a mind that's not going to be caught in preoccupations. It's not going to be distracted by, you know, did I, did I do my taxes right? It's not going to be today's tax day, right? <clears throat> am, I, am I not going, I'm not going to be distracted by self-consciousness, I'm not going to be distracted by, you know, desires, to what to do tomorrow or regrets about yesterday. Because to be lucidly aware is to be in the present moment. And it isn't so necessarily you have to be that lucid aware all the time. But something happens to the mind when it has that kind of clarity, steadiness, that's not distracted or pulled off mark, pulled off the go, off the off track. That makes the mind um, very, very open. Very, uh, I like the I like I like the word poised or ready. Very ready. The language of the ancient world is uh, uh, malleable and workable. Ready, malleable, and workable kind of ready for something. It's, it's workable. It's ready to kind of be, be shaped or to move. My, um, I liken it to sometimes to um, 
taking uh, dried bees, cold beeswax, and you can't really work with cold beeswax, it's kind of hard. If you, the only thing you can do is maybe break it. But if you hold it for a while on your hand, and, and the heat of your hand will soften the wax, and then you can shape it into something. It becomes malleable and ready and workable to make something. So the same thing with the mind. Part of the function of this mindfulness practice is to help the mind become soft, malleable, and ready in this lucid, clear awareness. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because I think some people are a little bit too, when they do mindfulness practice, think that mindfulness is only about being aware of what's happening in the moment, like, like you know, being aware that I'm holding a book, I'm talking, there are people listening, there's lights on, just kind of noticing what the object of attention is. And that's part of it. But the other half of mindfulness practice is cultivating and developing a ready mind, a soft mind, an open mind, a uh, spacious mind. And so, uh, uh, so the how we practice, how we pay attention, should be in such a way that it helps the mind to relax, to soften. And the more it softens, the more it relaxes, the more it's relaxed, then, um, and the more it kind of develops its lucid awareness, then at some point, um, uh, this is an amazing kind of teaching that the Buddha gave, at some point, even if you don't want to get enlightened, you will. And he, and he, and he likens it to uh, a, a hen sitting on her eggs. Uh, as long as she's there sitting on the eggs, incub- you know, incubating them, keeping them warm, um, the eggs will hatch, even if she doesn't want them to hatch. So in the same way, if you're incubating your awakening, <laughs> if you're staying present, staying present, keeping the mind, the heart warm, keeping the beeswax from getting cold, getting warmer and warmer, softer and softer, then at some point, um, the mind will finally let go of where it's the last vestiges of hardness or toughness or, or um, clinging that's there. And, um, but we need this continuity. We need to really kind of develop, cultivate this kind of mind. And it's kind of nice to realize that um, this experience of very deep letting go, it's not something that you do. It's not something that we self-consciously can do. It's something that gets done to us. So part of this cultivating of lucid awareness is learning also, this very important part of it is learning how to be present in a clear way without being too involved in self-conscious thinking, identification, concerns. And that's a hard lesson to learn because, you know, your concerns are important to you and it can be counterintuitive to put them to rest, to put put them down for a while for seven days, or half a month, or a month, or two, or three, or four, or five, or six, or a year, or two, three, four, five, six, or seven years, to put them down, to kind of shift the orientation that you have, to shift the preoccupation. And it does require a kind of shift of, pers- of perspective to do this practice. And, uh, and the instructions that the Buddha gives for developing mindfulness begins at the very beginning with a shift of perspective. 
that uh, kind of the introduction to it all, you start with the shift. And the shift is putting away greed or covetous, the word is as a covetous, covetousness and grief for the world. And, um, and how I understand this is that if you're going to do a mindfulness practice, you want to um, not be concerned with what you want in the world or what you are dismayed about in the world. Uh, uh, and the way you do that is not so much by getting rid of those, those emotions, those feelings, but realizing that the, and this is where the shift of perspective is so important for this practice, is when you're doing mindfulness practice in this kind of you know, uh, intent way that the Buddha seemed to uh, encourage us to do, during that time, you want to be able to turn your attention 180 degrees around, away from the things of the world, to your own subjective experience. What's happening here? Not to, not to reject the world. There are certainly times when we should pay attention to the world. But if you're doing this deep meditation practice, you want to have a perspective where you understand that it's not about the world. It's not about fixing a problem at work. It's not about figuring out dinner. It's not figuring out how to get revenge on someone you have resentment for. It's not trying to remember what happened yesterday and figure out a better past. It's not about planning the future. It's not about being concerned with what's happening uh, in the world around you in any kind of way. It's okay, it's okay to have those concerns outside of meditation, but the shift of perspective is to turn the attention 180 degrees around to be present for the subjective experience of experience, the way it feels like, what it's like to experience what's going on. So if you have covetousness, or if you have grief or distress about the world, if you turn your attention 180 degrees around, you would look that right in the face, right in the eye. Greed, I see you. This is what it's like here to be, be greedy. You don't have to reject the greed, you're simply turning away from the object of the greed. So if I really want this book, if I'm greedy for this book, <clears throat> I, uh, the, 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 the shift of perspective is no longer focus on the book and what the book will do for me and turn the attention around and feel what it's like to have that strong desire for it. Where's the tension? What happens in the mind? What's the thoughts and the feelings go with it? So that's the shift of perspective that is the, the beginning point of doing this mindfulness practice. And, uh, and then from there, the mind begins to settle down as we do this practice. We're less inclined to be pulled off into the past and the future or be agitated, spinning in our thoughts. Things quiet down and get settled. And as the mind is less preoccupied, it becomes more clearly aware. As we become more clearly aware, we become aware of our body, our physical experience. As we settle into our physical experience more and more, we become aware of what it feels like to be in a body. What it feels like to be in a body. We start noticing uh, how it, there's pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings and sensations that are neither pleasant or unpleasant. And we start seeing that these pleasant and unpleasant feelings, um, how they come into play, how they work, how they move through us. And we start recognizing that there's a deeper underlying feeling of pleasant or unpleasant kind of 
quality, feelings within us, kind of quality of being, that are not connected to stimulus from the world, what's happening in the world, but belongs more deeply to the quality of our being, how we are. And so rather than being on the surface feelings of how things are, we, we slowly learn to drop into what's deeply going on for us. It's a deep kind of heartfelt connection to ourselves. What's really here? How am I? In, in a deep kind of word. And this is the quality of our heart, the quality of our mind. And then we learn to recognize what's going on there, the quality of our hearts and mind, and what's deeper than the experience of the moment. And, uh, and as we settle into that and open up to it, and perhaps uh, we settle away some of the agitated, some of the forces of um, distress and fear and greed and different things that kind of are deep down sometimes, they settle away. The mind becomes more, more aware, more expansive, more spacious, more relaxed. And that relaxed mind, then awareness starts becoming, uh, the mindfulness practice takes in the operating system, the operating um, behavior of our mind to see how it is that uh, we, you know, what are the forces within us that bring us suffering and perpetuate our suffering. We see how there's clinging. And we see that it's possible to become free and move in the other direction. Rather than moving towards clinging and tightening up more, moving away from it, opening the grip, opening the the hand that clings, opening the mind, and moving towards these beautiful states of mind that come as the mind becomes more and more open, as the heart opens more. And then finally, to learn to let go, or letting the mind let go in this deep way that leads to liberation. It's a remarkable path. It's one of the, the, at least in Buddhist terminology, one of the noble things to do with human life that uh, from down through the centuries, many, many Buddhist practitioners has, have seen that this has given them a purposeful life, a sense of purpose, a direction, an orientation, um, <clears throat> something of great value <clears throat> to do, not just for themselves, but also for the world around them. Um, because if you can be completely free, or not even completely, just partially free, <laughs> of your clinging, your grasping, your fear, your self-consciousness, the constrictions we have around self, uh, then we can become uh, much more useful to the world around us. We become a gift. We, en- we enter into the world with what some people called, in Zen, they called gift-bestowing hands. We become a gift to the world that we can't really be if we're locked up in our self-conscious concerns. So seven years, or six, or five, or four, or three, or two, or one, or half a year, or five months, four months, three, two, one month, let alone one month, half a month, but not even just half a month, in seven days. And it just happens to be that the standard length of time for a retreat in our retreat center is, <laughs> is seven days. So um, it's a wonderful thing to give yourself over for seven days as fully as possible into this practice 
and uh, give yourself over in a way that's hard to do outside of retreat. <coughs> but it's a wonderful thing to do on retreat. So um, I hope that this series of, now I don't know how many talks I've given, some 15 talks on this topic, I think. I hope that uh, those of you who've come to them found them useful or interesting or engaging and kind of gave you a, an understanding and orientation to one of the basic practices of the Buddhism and also the basic practice here. We're a mindfulness center. It's one of the key practices we do. So we have some minutes left. Uh, does anyone have any questions or comments you'd like to make? His foot's asleep. If someone could help him. <laughs> Maybe now it's on. Oh, okay. I guess I'm going to ask the obvious question: Why stop at a week? I mean, was there something? Is there something magical about a week? Can we do it in a day or an hour? Oh. Um, I believe there's an alternative version of this text that's uh, preserved in Chinese that has it faster than seven days. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so I don't know if uh, there's you know why why this this version start, stops at seven days. The um, you know, but it's uh, you know for most of us it's not so realistic to expect it's going to happen much faster. But you know, it's unknown. It's unknown. What it, what one of the one of the ideas is it's actually unknown how long uh, it'll take any an individuals. Different people takes different length of time. And one of the things that really inspired there's a, one of the Spirit Rock teachers is Sylvia Borstein, and what really fueled her in her deep practice when she was engaged in it, she she overheard some teachers talking, and the message she got from it was. Um, um, you know, everyone, if everyone it takes the length of time it takes for them, but we don't know how long it's going to be, so um, it could be any minute. <laughs> you know, and uh, she, had, she had to, you know, so, so she said, I better, I better practice then, you know, so she kind of gave herself fully over to the practice and, and uh, with that kind of enthusiasm. If you can move the mic back over here by the... Hi. Um, I have a question about interacting with people. Because uh-huh. um, lately I've noticed that, you know, I'm interacting with a person and all of a sudden they make me really excited or they make me really angry. And I notice that, oh, you make me excited or you make me really angry. And then I get really caught up in that emotion and it kind of like multiplies itself uh-huh. and when it happens you know when I'm sitting I can go back to my anchor uh-huh. but when I'm interacting with somebody then I notice that I'm no longer listening or I'm no longer present it's uh, one of the hardest places to be mindful is in conversations and so it's something that we want to um, it's like uh, it's like um, 
if you go to the gym to work out, you don't pick up a 200-pound weight the first time you're there. You start with maybe a one-pound weight, and then slowly you build towards it. So with conversations, and difficult conversations, um, uh, you want to uh, build up the muscle of mindfulness through meditation, through practicing places where it's easier, practicing in easier conversations. So that you, a couple of things happen. You start knowing yourself really well, and you have the ability to, to stay mindful, stay present, and you, you know how you sweep away, how you, get, how you lose your mindfulness, and because you've watched it over and over again, how you've lost it. So you, as you get more and more familiar with it, um, you'll catch yourself earlier and earlier. And one day you'll catch yourself before you lose yourself. And then you'll stay aware and present and you won't give yourself over or won't, you won't get caught up in what your preoccupations. But it takes practice. And um, there can be... Some people wait <coughs> to practice until they're challenged by something. But then it might be too late because you haven't prepared yourself for it. And so it's good to have a regular practice. And then uh, with time, I bet that uh, you'll learn to stay balanced, equanimous, not get caught by the energies of other people. What do you think of that? Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. (laughs) Is there another mic over on that side? Yeah, it's coming to you. Thanks, Gil, for all your knowledge you shared with us. Uh, my question is like, when you practice mindfulness, does it get boring sometimes? <laughs> and um, uh, I think uh, from, uh, everything comes through mindfulness practice sooner or later. So boredom is one of the things that will come. And, um, and uh, when boredom does come, it's a fascinating topic of attention, to study it. So the trick is, don't believe it. Don't get pushed around by it, but study it. Look at it, bring mindfulness to really see boredom and see what's going on. And what's interesting about boredom is that no, nothing is inherently boring. Boredom is an evaluation. So you're not an innocent person just because things are boring, therefore you feel bored. Uh, things are not boring. Things are just things. But, the, but there's some activity in the mind, some evaluations, some, some um, thinking that goes on. So what is that? What is happening in you that evaluates it as boring? And there's a couple of things that people uh, sometimes find around boredom. Uh, one is that boredom is a subtle form of, of uh, aversion resistance, pushing things away. I don't, want, I don't like this. So that's, you know, it's not necessary to have that kind of movement. Sometimes uh, people find that boredom is a sign of being removed from the experience. So we're kind of holding ourselves apart from it and then judging it or looking down at it as opposed to being intimate with the experience. So when you're bored, you, one of the questions you can ask yourself is, how could I be more connected to what's happening right now? How can I be more present for it? Give myself over to it more. Relax into it. Um, so if you, study, if you study boredom and you find it interesting, then you stop being bored. Does that answer your question or do you have something more detail you want to say? I think uh, it does 
I'm sorry. I, I think it does give me insights into um, the things. And then one of the things which I just learned that all of a sudden I put more importance to things which are not important yes. was this mindfulness. Uh-huh. Great. Thank you. In, in about the middle of your talks, there were four, and what was the name? Starts with an A. Four. Four foundations of mindfulness? Well, I've got the image of foam as the first one. Uh, who? Aggregates. Aggregates. Oh, in the series. The series, yes. yeah. You yeah, were foam, talking yes. about the, the four. There's a five. It's called the five aggregates. Five. Yeah. Started with foam, like on a river? <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the analogy for it. Right. Can you just really quickly, it ends up with bamboo. Can, can you just, it sure made sense to me that day, and I keep losing it. Yeah, I don't know if I can remember so offhand uh, the analogy. So, so there are these, <clears throat> when we have an, exp- um, so all experiences we have, all, all things we know as they, in the moment, direct experience, uh, arise in one of five different areas, ways, or ways of knowing. We can know it physically. So there can be physical experience, the direct physical contact with experience. And that uh, is called form, the aggregate of form, the, co- collect, the, the collected, uh, the aggregate means a, col- a heap or a collection of, of ways of knowing. So the, the collected ways of knowing things physically. And that's likened to foam. On a, uh, it has no essence, no s- real substance. It's kind of there, but you know, foam is like a whole bunch of little bubbles that you know can pop. So um, it's kind of insubstantial, kind of. So we think our body is solid, but if you uh, really stay closely connected to the direct experience of physicality as it arises, it actually comes and goes and flows and moves uh, like foam. Then feelings. Um, I think are like bubbles. So feelings are the the simple uh, 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 way in which our experiences not 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 feeling like emotions, but uh, the feeling tone. Things are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So as we're g- going through having experiences, one of the ways we know and experience things is pleasant or unpleasant. The basic you know, pleasure principle, which is so big for for humans, and those are uh, like bubbles. They appear a little bit and then they can pop. And then um, there is um, um, uh, what's called uh, one way we now the third way we experience things the third heap or aggregate is our um, the very simple cognitions or concepts through which we perceive things. So you know in this day and age we can identify this as a book. And so there's a certain concept book, and, and the, you know that we have in order to see this as a book. And um, there was a time, you know, some thousands of years ago, that you ha- if you handed this to human beings, they would not have a clue what this was. And it looks like we're going in that direction again soon. <laughs> the. Um, but, you know, so we have a simple concept. So we can know the world, the knowing of the world arises out of this certain kind of, they call it perception in English, this, this form, 
But it's, it's not this innocent perception, it's the perceptions that arises because we have simple labels for our experience. And um, so um, that's called an, a, a mirage or an illusion. So, and then the and then there's the mental activities of wanting and not wanting, having intentions, uh, having thoughts about things, and more complicated emotions. And that's called uh, mental constructs or mental formations. And that is like an uh, maybe that's what we think of a bamboo to um, a, a, bana- a, a trunk of a banana tree. Because apparently the banana trunks are hollow inside. And so all our these mental constructs we make um, are not really, they're somehow connected to the world, but they have no essence or substance to themselves. As you know, because we can have all kinds of thoughts that turn out to be false. We can have all kinds of thoughts that seem so important in the moment, but the next day you say, what was I thinking? You know, it was, you know they don't have, in their essence, they're, like, you know, if you, they're hollow in the core. And then the f- fifth aggregate is consciousness. The ability, the very basic ability just to know or be aware that allows you to kind of perceive or sense or feel or kind of know what's happening moment by moment. And that's the analogy for that is um, a, ma- a, a magic show. Thank you. And so if we, if we, so part of one of these exercises in this book is to become aware of these five aggregates because they're so central to how we experience things and to really kind of see them in a deep way and not be fooled by them, not think that they are, you know, places to get hung up on or be, be take as too substantial or too set, this is how it is, but to learn to hold or be present, be with these f- feelings of the body and sin- the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, the perceptions we have, the thoughts we have, the conscience we have, to be with it without any kind of clinging, without any kind of holding or resistance. Just very simple, like an open hand that's going to hold something lightly. So this idea of letting go, um, you know, if we, rather than dropping um, something and you know, it breaks when you let go of it and falls on the floor. It's more like you're holding a little bird in your hand. And when you open your hand and let go of the bird, it flies away. It's free. So if you can let go of your mind, it'll fly. It won't fly away too far, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll become free. Like a bird. And then there's a very interesting uh, uh, analogy that Buddha gave that um, for people who are liberated, um, uh, they're like a bird flying through the sky that they don't leave a path. There's no traces of a path left behind. So when we're liberated, then we don't leave it. Certain kind of certain kind of way we don't we don't leave any traces. Nothing. When we go through and live our life, it kind of like everything is done completely each time, and we nothing. There's no traces left. There's no, no no residue. Our path is like a the path of a bird through the sky. Yes. 
here and there. Um, for you personally, um, would you say um, this is how you are in the world um, all the time or some of the time for you? This meaning without a trace, leaving a trace? No, just <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I mean just this whole description of the mi- of um, all this, everything you said. Yeah, or just you always you actually achieve this um, liberation and freedom from clinging in all the other Mm -hmm. levels Mm -hmm. at this point after all you've done. Yeah. Okay. So it's a fair question. Um, The um, well, uh, one of the most important things I've done in my life was when I went off and and uh, practiced for many months, uh, doing this practice here uh, intensely, intensively. And through that practice, uh, I built up this, uh, you know, wonderful continuity of the mindfulness, the lucid awareness, and that at some point something did give away. There was a deep release that changed me. I feel I've been changed ever since by that experience. And um, exactly what it is and how, you know, where it fits. In, in Buddhism, they, it's, uh, they have the various um, grades of liberation or freedom a person can, can attain where it fits in that map and the grade, and I don't have much clue or much interest in knowing. Um, but I know I've been changed by it in a way that uh, my life is much better because of it. So you feel, you just feel different in the world, and you're just totally different than you... Than I used to, yes, for sure. And I think there's many ways, I can, different things I can say, but one of them is that is that uh, um, there's you know much much less uh, self consciousness and a kind of neurotic self consciousness, and there's much less greed and much less hate than uh, what I had before. So I, these things are still there in, in small ways. I hope, hope they're small ways. We'll have to see. Don't provoke me. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but uh, you know, I think they're much more decre- much decreased, and it feels really great. I mean, the, the consequence is a sense of ease <clears throat> and happiness that I, f- I feel. You know, maybe not you know often enough. Like happy with it. Great. I really, th- I just want to share one thing, and that's that I'm, I haven't been here in a while. And the reason why is I've been in a very um, high-level, intense um, Kabbalah class studying the original text, which is now translated into English in 12 volumes. Mm. I mean, not the stuff that Kabbalah Center does. And what it amounted to, it was so impractical. It, on a certain level, what, um, where it went, I mean, we get the stuff that we can apply in our life, but where it went was God understanding God. And it was so esoteric, and I really, um, this seems to just completely aim at personal transformation. Yeah. Great. I'm just sharing that. It was just unbelievable. It it does. And um, though it's easy to read this text that I, you know, if you've uninitiated and read this text, it is easy to be bored by it. <laughs> Some of you who've tried to read it probably have been bored by it, but but uh, it's not you know it's not meant for you know easy reading Saturday night. It's, 
but it's it's quite profound what it's offering to do. It's instruction manual. Right. So, um, yeah. So great. Thank you for that. Yeah, because there is practical Kabbalah. That's what's being yeah. taught, and that's not the text uh-huh. of the Zohar. Oh, I see. So it's interesting. Right. Totally interesting. So you're welcome to stay afterwards and ask me up here, but I don't want to keep people beyond our contract. <laughs> you know, nine o'clock. You know, supposed to people need to go back. So, thank you all very much. <clears throat> but you know, please, if you have a question.